0: From the Theology of the Body Institute, this is
1: the Ask Christopher West Podcast.
0: Hello, listeners. Hey everybody. Welcome to another episode of our Marital Podcast. Marital. That's a good word. (laughs) (laughs) Nuptial. Let's call it the nuptial nuptial podcast.
1: Yeah. So today I was looking through some old. Um, questions that we have kind of we have a file of podcast questions thank was, you everybody for yes. sending in your
0: questions we yes. couldn't have the show if you didn't send That's in questions right and thank you for your patience with us that we can't get to all of them but we do as wendy is saying we do yeah. every once in a while go back and Going look at back old ones. so i
1: was looking back through and i saw something that i thought oh this is of interest and i forwarded it to christopher um and it was very interesting too. it was so, very interesting
0: yeah. i want to give a shout out to jessica Thank you, Jessica. Some time ago, you sent in to our podcast email. Is that how they submit questions? Mm -hmm. I don't even know. (laughs) No, you go to the website and there's some submission (laughs) zone. (laughs) Thank you, Jessica. (laughs) Thank you, You Jessica. You figured it out. You figured it out. And she included a link to a YouTube video of an interview of a woman in Hollywood who's a Christian woman and has done a lot of work in Hollywood promoting the faith and evangelizing. But there's this one section of the interview in which she was asked, uh, share a, a story in which you know there was a lot of spiritual battle in what you were doing in Hollywood. She was working for MSNBC at the time and a show that interviewed famous people. And she was assigned to interview Hugh Hefner, she and this oh, other wow. person on the N- MSNBC team. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, in the year 2000. So, she's telling the story many years later, and I have had a great interest in the work of Hugh Hefner, not for the, <laughs> that didn't sound so good, did it? I think you, we might know you what you know mean. know what I mean, Go ahead, yeah. Wendy. Yeah. And if anybody out there doesn't know what I mean, here's what I mean. I'm trying to evangelize the culture that Hugh Hefner evangelized, if you will, the the way people think about the human body, and human sexuality, has been much more influenced by the likes of Hugh Hefner than it has been by the likes of John Paul II. And those two men are contemporaries, which I also find fascinating. Both of them are responding to a puritanical approach to sexuality, and Hugh Hefner responded with licentiousness, and John Paul II responded with redemption. And I've told the story many times in my work that I was first educated about sex by Hugh Hefner and then I was re-educated and had came to a redeemed and redeeming understanding of sexuality, saved from all that garbage by John Paul II. And anyway, so I have had an interest in this man's life. I've read lots of interviews with Hugh Hefner in which he said things like, my mother never hugged me when I was a boy. Uh, I've been searching for love my whole life. I've been mm-hmm. trying to fill this void. He's even said things like, and now he's dead now, of course, but he said things like, I would really like to know who Jesus was. I was raised in a very strict Christian home. Uh, he said, I founded Playboy magazine as my personal response to the hurt and hypocrisy of Puritanism in my strict Christian upbringing. Things like that uh, have sparked my interest in mm-hmm. what is the backstory of a man like Hugh Hefner. How does he become that kind of person and how does he, wh- what was motivating him? So, you know, people are so quick to write him off and um, for understandable reasons. I mean, the, what he did was a wrecking ball. He was one of the main architects of the sexual revolution. I don't, I don't want to sugarcoat that or whitewash that at all, right. just to be clear. But I, as an evangelist, I'm always trying to understand the heart of a person. What's behind the dysfunction? What's behind the serious sin that we commit? There's always something good that's gotten twisted up. Mm-hmm. So anyway, this this Christian woman also took that approach in this interview okay. with Hugh Hefner. And I learned a story about Hugh Hefner that I had never known, which is very sad uh, and very kind of insightful into his psychology, that... When he was a boy, his mother was a, uh, what's the word, germaphobe? Mm. And so her, his mother never touched him, never oh. hugged him, never kissed him. And the one thing he had that gave him comfort was a blanket that had bunnies on it. Oh. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows the Playboy Bunny, right? Yeah. And he talked about how this blanket was such a comfort in his ache, in this cry of his heart for for love that he didn't get from his mother. He would snuggle with this blanket, and he, he longed to have a dog. But his mom didn't want to have a dog in the house because of the germs. And he was getting an operation as a boy where he might have lost his hearing. And his mom, in sympathy, said, okay, if we keep a dog in this section of the house... You can have the dog. So he got this dog, and he gave the dog, this little puppy, he gave this puppy his bunny blanket to sleep on. Mm. And the puppy died five days later.
1: Oh, no. Yeah,
0: on this blanket. And then his mother burned the blanket right in his presence, like his only attachment to comfort.
1: Oh, that is really sad.
0: Yeah, it's really sad. Again, this is not saying in any way to whitewash the horrors that he inflicted on our culture as one of the main architects of the sexual revolution, but I share the story to help us have some compassion for such a man. These are the things, like when, when that prostitute came running into Jesus and wept at his feet, Jesus says to Simon the Pharisee, who's absolutely... Uh, scandalized by by Jesus being so intimate with this woman. And he says, if, if he were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is. And Jesus says, Simon, do you see this woman? Right. And it says right in the gospel that he's looking right at the woman as he's talking to Simon. Simon, do you see this woman? Jesus sees through this woman and all of her sin to get down to... What's she really looking for? What's really going on in her heart? What are mm-hmm. the, her pains? What are her sufferings? What are her questions? What are her aches? What are her longings? How have they been misdirected? Same thing with Hugh Hefner. Like I, I just hear Jesus saying, "I've always heard this." Like Jesus saying, "Christopher, I want you to see people like Hugh Hefner. I want you to understand what motivated them. I want you to see what they were really looking for." I'm just grateful to you, Jessica, for for sending that link. And I just want to invite us out there, everybody listening, to think on the people we want to reach with the gospel. It can never be imposed on them, and it's, we're never going to reach people with the gospel by scolding or shaming people. We need to understand the human heart and how it works. And I think Hugh Hefner is a great case study here for what horrors can happen when genuine human desires get twisted up and misdirected. And uh, anyway, thank you, Jessica, for sending that in. Just gave me the opportunity to share some thoughts. I, I hope that's helpful to people. And uh, you know, why don't why don't we jump in with some
1: absolutely some questions? Uh, here's a question from a listener named Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. She says, "Hello, Christopher and Wendy. I've been listening to the show since episode one, and I'm so thankful for this work you're doing. I'm a non-Catholic believer."
0: Awesome! Glad you found our show.
1: Can you explain the doctrine of transubstantiation and why Protestants are not allowed to receive communion in the Catholic Church?
0: Nope. Next question. Hey, now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in my stupid response, there's actually a a hidden truth. Transubstantiation is a, a mystery which defies explanation in the sense that we typically think of explanation. You can't diagram it on a blackboard as to what is happening. And one cannot come to believe in transubstantiation without precisely that belief, without faith. Mm. So, I mean, I can say some things about transubstantiation. We believe as Catholics that the body and blood of Christ is really and truly sacramentally present in what appears to be, after the words of consecration, bread and wine. But transubstantiation means the very substance is transformed. It becomes sacramentally, and the word sacramentally is very important. Sometimes even Catholics in their desire to defend the real presence can use a language that is not appropriate and, and we have to be very careful with our words here, so I'm going to try to be myself. What we believe is that the physical body of Christ is sacramentally present. Sacramentally present means that this appears like bread and wine, but it really and truly sacramentally communicates the real presence of Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. After 2,000 years of reflecting on these things, this is the language the church Mm. uses to describe what we believe the Eucharist is. So, I hope that's helpful. It might be raising more questions in people's minds than than answering, but—
1: I'm just being reminded of something that I received recently in an email from a friend who— so, it's one of those where I'm not going to give proper credit because I forget where she got it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm sorry about that. But it was quoting from some of the writings of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, who was an American woman who was raised Protestant and then converted to Catholicism mm-hmm. after having lived in Italy for a time. And it was while she was in Italy that she witnessed just the the genuine, loving faith of Catholics. She saw processions, Eucharistic processions, where they're holding high the host and just that kind of publicly proclaiming how much they loved the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Yes. And then in this um, story she talked about when she came back to the United States, she, she hadn't become Catholic yet, but she would be in her church in New York City, but she could see out the window Wow. St. Patrick's Cathedral. Wow, wow, wow! And she would just be sitting in her church, looking out the window at the cross on the cathedral, which was positioned above the tabernacle, mm. and just feeling that same longing for that loving bond with the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. That that was really. Powerful, a powerful story for me to hear about her, you know, kind of literally, you know, she's got her eyes out the window looking at where she believes Christ is truly present.
0: It sounds like Elizabeth might have a little stirring in her heart as yeah, well, a certain longing based on the second part of her question, which was, remind me, why can't?
1: Why why Protestants aren't allowed to receive communion in the Catholic Church.
0: Okay, so obviously this is a, a sensitive thing. But when it's properly understood, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I want to be clear and say it's not just Protestants who can't receive it, but Catholics shouldn't receive the Eucharist if they are not in communion with the church. When we receive the Eucharist, we are expressing that we are in communion with the church. And if we're not in communion with the church then it would be dishonest to receive communion. We would be saying something that is not true. And Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll just tell a story from my own life. It was, I think, 1992. It was the Easter vigil. A friend of mine who had been Protestant was coming into the Catholic Church, and he stood up in front of everyone and said, I believe and profess everything the Catholic Church believes and professes then he was welcomed into full communion with the church he had already been baptized so he was confirmed in his catholic faith and then he received communion in the church because he had professed his communion with the church i didn't go to communion that night i was raised a catholic but i didn't go to communion that night because i realized for the first time i don't believe, this was in 1992 I don't believe and profess everything the Catholic Church believes and professes. I was wrestling, and more specifically, I was wrestling with the church's teaching on contraception at that time. And I thought to myself, I realized for the first time what I'm supposed to be saying when I receive communion. I'm supposed to be saying I believe and profess everything the Catholic Church believes and professes. Mm -hmm. And if I don't, it would be a lie for me to go to communion. So I didn't go to communion. And my that realization that I shouldn't go to communion that night set me on a journey that is a direct line to what I do with my life now. I didn't go to communion that night, and I said to myself, well, I really better come to terms with why the church teaches what it teaches about contraception, because if I don't, I'm really protesting what the church teaches. So if I'm going to be a man of integrity, I'll have to acknowledge I am a protestant. And so I realized I'm either going to have to come into communion or just be honest and say I'm a Protestant. And I searched, I sought for looking for answers and it led me to the theology of the body and it's rocked my world and changed my life. So yeah, these are very important questions. So, Elizabeth, I just invite you to press in to what's on your heart. Where is that question coming from? Mm-hmm. Are you longing to be in communion? Are you longing to receive communion in the Catholic Church? Then press in to all of your questions about what the Church teaches. The truth is not afraid of our questions. Mm-hmm. The question is, are we afraid of the truth? Seek, Elizabeth. Keep seeking. Seekers, find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Seek and you will find. And we're so happy that you found our podcast. We, we hope it continues to be a blessing for you. And if you have other specific questions about the Catholic faith that you want to submit to us, we'll keep our eye out for them and we'll be happy to address them in a future podcast.
1: Yeah, that sounds good.
0: I'd also say to Elizabeth and any other listeners out there, if you you know, there are so many great resources out there. First of all, Elizabeth, get yourself a catechism, the catechism of the Catholic Church, and just start looking in the index and reading. And then look up conversion stories like Jeff Caven's conversion story or Scott Hahn's conversion story. And just listen to what have other Protestants experienced in their journey into the Catholic Church? What obstacles have they run into and maybe their stories could be of help to you if you're if you're on that journey yourself.
1: Next question is from a listener named
0: Jose. Hey, Jose. Jose, Jose. So, I'm sorry. That was Jimmy Fallon. You know that, <laughs> the the misheard song lyrics? Yes, I know what you're talking yeah, about. <laughs> Jose, Jose, Jose or one. <laughs> uh, sorry. Okay.
1: Here's his question He says Hi Wendy and Christopher I've been on a journey with Jesus To have a pure heart I have a question Is my heart my soul? (laughs) We're getting the real theology today
0: Yeah I, I like these deeper questions Well It depends what you mean by the word heart And it depends what you mean by the word soul And I'm so weird. Songs just pop into my head, you know. Do you know what song I'm thinking about, Wendy? Uh, No. Could it be? Heart and Soul. Heart and Soul. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we have two different words. I think there are some distinctions to be made here. Notice that the word heart is a physical word, uh, we all have a beating organ in our chest called the heart, but we use that physical organ as a symbol of a spiritual reality. And when we speak of that spiritual reality, there are three distinctions we can make here. We can speak of heart, we can speak of soul, and we can speak of spirit. Mm-hmm. And I don't have the exact reference in my mind But there is a great line in the catechism, if you look up the word soul or spirit in the index of the catechism, there's a great paragraph in there where it it makes a certain distinction between soul and spirit, but also says sometimes we use these terms interchangeably. And I would say the same thing about heart and soul. I think there are distinctions that can be made, but we often use those terms Interchangeably, I think scripture speaks far more of the heart than it does of the soul.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And there's some great, great stuff in the catechism on what the heart is. The catechism says the heart is your deep interior mm. where you choose, as he says, I want to have a pure heart. He says the heart, the catechism says the heart is the deep interior where we choose between the pure and the impure. Mm. Blessed are the pure of heart. Mm-hmm. they shall see God. It would be, it would be, it would have a different flavor if Jesus said, blessed are the pure of soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, Obviously, there's a clear relationship between the heart and the soul. We're, we're We're speaking of, in both cases, the interior mystery of the person.
1: You brought up also the word spirit, and I'm just yeah. curious whether you can add anything about any distinction there with
0: yeah, well, let me here, let me I'll pull off the catechism pull the catechism right off the shelf here and I'll just read right out of the catechism. Okay. So Okay. Okay, so I've got my direct catechism reference here to talk about spirit, soul, and heart. This is catechism 367 and 368. So 367, sometimes the soul is distinguished from the spirit. St. Paul, for instance, prays that God may sanctify his people wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, with spirit and soul and body kept sound and blameless at the Lord's coming. The church teaches that this distinction does not introduce a duality in the soul. In other words, it's not splitting the soul into two. Spirit signifies that from creation, man is ordered to a supernatural end, and that his soul can gratuitously be raised beyond all that it deserves to communion with God. Then it goes on to say in 368 the spiritual tradition of the church also emphasizes the heart in the biblical sense of the depths of one's being, hmm. where the person decides for or against God. Now, here's maybe one way to look at it as concentric circles. If we have the, the biggest circle being that which is spiritual in the human being, mm. then maybe we would have the soul being the, the second concentric circle and the heart being the center of mm. the concentric circles. Um, others might want to order that in a different way, but I think that might be one way mm-hmm. to look at it. Okay. I hope that's helpful. I want to just encourage you, Jose, continue seeking that purity of heart. Purity of heart is not to be confused with Puritanism. Puritanism being a fearful rejection of God's creation, especially the body and sexuality. Purity of heart, blessed are the pure of heart, they shall see God. We could add, based on all we know from John Paul's theology, the body, Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see the mystery of God revealed through the human body. John Paul II says, purity is the glory of God in the human body. It's the glory of God manifested in the human body. Please, Lord, please give us purity of heart so that we can see your glory, your beauty, your goodness Revealed, manifested, reflected, proclaimed in and through our bodies as male and female and the call of the two to become one flesh. That's my prayer for you, Jose. Go for it. Keep yeah, going, brother.
1: It, I agree. I just think, Jose, it's a beautiful window into just the journey of your heart and the Lord's heart together, that you've kind of found each other, and this relationship is a transforming relationship, and it, it just your question just has this sound of freshness and new mm. life that's so inspiring, and we all need that refreshment that, you know, Lord, give us a new heart, put a new spirit in us, and that, mm.
0: that purity of heart that you're talking about is very beautiful. I like that idea. It kind of has the, the fragrance of springtime about it.
1: hmm Here's a question from Ambry. Hi, Ambry. My husband and I were introduced to NFP during our pre-marriage classes.
0: That's natural family planning for those who might not know the acronym out there.
1: It has helped us to grow in our faith over the years. I'm pregnant now with our fifth baby, and we'll have my fifth cesarean section in November. Bless you, Ambry. Mm -hmm. My doctor asked me, If I would like to do a tubal this time, as she strongly advises in her medical opinion that I should not become pregnant a sixth time. She even suggested I talk with a priest to see if it would ever be permissible to do a tubal for serious medical reasons. Is it ever permissible to get your tubes tied? Or is it always a serious sin no matter what the reason? Thank you for any information you can give me on what the church teaches in these circumstances. And God bless you.
0: Bless you, Ambry. Bless you, bless you, bless you. It can be so confusing when we go to the medical professionals we trust and they're saying one thing and we're wondering, what does the church teach? And they're saying, well, you have a serious medical reason for this. What you may very well have is a serious medical reason to avoid another child. But the end, which may be very justified and, and proper, the end does not justify the means so what the church teaches is that any act that renders the sexual act intentionally sterile is objectively disordered which means under no circumstance could that there could be nothing that could ever justify that that could make something that is intrinsically wrong in this situation acceptable and good so just to cut to the the short answer is no, there is no circumstance in which rendering the sexual act sterile, be it through contraceptive pills or devices or surgeries, would become in of itself acceptable. Because there is always a moral way to achieve the same good end. There, we are never forced to choose an objectively wrong means to achieve a good end. The objectively good means to achieve that good end might involve sacrifice, it might involve suffering, it might be difficult, but it is never impossible. And if it is indeed what the Lord is asking of us, he will give us the grace to do it and we will learn more and more through those sufferings and sacrifices what it means to love divinely. And I want to underscore that word divinely marriage and even more specifically the marital embrace is a call to love divinely husbands love your wives as christ loved the church that is a sacrificial call that is a call we're all called the fundamental call of the gospel is love one another as i have loved you What we learn throughout Scripture, what we learn through John Paul II's illumination of Scripture in his theology of the body, is that the call to love divinely, the call to love as Christ loves, the very fulfillment of the gospel, is chiseled by God right in our sexuality. And we can be even more specific and say it's written right in our fertility, God's love is generous. God's love generates life. Christ came so that we might have life and have it to the full. And that is literally written in our bodies when the two become one flesh. It's written that we are to proclaim with our bodies that God is life-giving love. Now, that does obviously does not mean that each and every act of marital intercourse is meant to lead to a child. That's not God's design. But we are not free to render the sexual act sterile. We are free to choose whether or not we will engage in the marital act. But if we choose to engage in the marital act, we are not free to take the powers of life into our own hands and render that sterile. I would encourage you, Ambry, you and your husband, to do a deeper study of the theology of the body. Maybe pick up theology of the body for beginners. Maybe take one of our tob 1 classes in fact uh, we will we will put a link in the show notes here about some information we will i hope we'll have it by the time this episode airs about a course where a, a theology of the body level 1 course we are going to be offering for the first time to the general public we're going to be offering it online during this corona lockdown so we'll have a link in the show notes about that where you can learn more about that. Consider taking that course online and going deeper into the beauty and liberation that comes when we truly understand what it means to become one flesh. Uh, We welcome that question, Ambry. I, I hope that it will inspire you. to to keep seeking, to keep looking for a deeper understanding. We we get to a point, John Paul II says, when we see how beautiful God's plan is for our sexuality, we we come to what he calls a salvific fear of ever violating or degrading what bears in itself the divine sign of, of creation and redemption. Our bodies, when a husband and a wife become one flesh, we are a sign of the whole mystery of creation and redemption. But when we render it sterile, we become a countersign, whether we know that or not. We're, this is not about assigning culpability. Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. So many of us, we just don't know. But I, I encourage you, I invite you, Ambry, to, to take this opportunity to come to know, to press in, to go deeper, to learn more.
1: Yeah, I wanted to add a few things to that as well. Ambry, I just was grateful that you reached out to us this early in your pregnancy, having just met with your doctor. I was struck by the doctor even encouraging you to talk to a priest in that there was a certain respect for your faith somehow communicated there. It doesn't sound like the doctor maybe shares the faith, but at least it communicated some respect for your faith. So, I appreciated that about what your doctor said. But I also got the feeling that it was kind of an overwhelming and very frightening um, thought that mm. am I at risk, are my children at risk of losing their mother or something, you know, very just kind of overwhelming. And sometimes when we get overwhelmed by a fear, the evil one can kind of latch on there and really kind of not permit us to be open to God's grace or make it very difficult to open ourselves to grace because that fear and the intensification of it or the emphasis of it by the evil one can really be kind of overwhelming. So I hope that in hearing this answer that Christopher has already shared, that it has like just enabled you to recognize that that a fear can be sort of overwhelming and yet there's a God who's bigger than all of this, who has good news for you and for your husband. So I don't know what your experience of NFP has been so far in your marriage, whether you maybe have concluded that it's uh, not fully effective in avoiding pregnancy, What maybe whether you need to um, just take some more NFP classes to really strengthen your knowledge of your cycle and your signs in order to more confidently use this uh, way of avoiding pregnancy. Also might want to consider, since it's so early in your pregnancy, the possibility of even changing doctors. And I don't say that to be critical of this doctor, who I already said I admire, but... I think you may have the opportunity to see someone who, rather than maybe just basing on the number of surgeries you've had, maybe have a different heart about God's plan for marriage and for reproduction and view you more uniquely, really give you information that's really pertinent to your situation rather than maybe— kind of just from a prediction sort of standpoint that might not be really personal to your um, your body and your health. So those are just some thoughts for you, you know, to consider it is a lot and it is overwhelming. But we pray peace be with you. We rejoice with you in this new life that you're carrying inside you. We pray for the health of this pregnancy, this delivery, and also the gift of clarity and peace and grace in your marriage to— continue as you already have to embrace God's plan and to recognize that He's strengthening you as a couple, even through times of abstinence or suffering or challenges and all of that, that
0: He's so faithfully present to you both. Wendy, I am reminded why it's so important that we do this show together <laughs> when you offer answers like that, just because you see things that I don't see and you feel it in your heart. And I, I just want to bless and affirm that I think what you said was so important for her to hear so thanks for sharing your heart Wendy Mm -hmm. and you know you you could even Ambry do a a search online possibly you might find a doctor in your area who's an NFP only doctor yeah Um, when you find a doctor like that you've found quite a treasure they will share your faith they will encourage you and Sometimes we can run into obstacles with our doctors and practicing our faith. With an NFP doctor, you will not find that. Mm-hmm. With an NFP only doctor, you will not find that. I think that's all the time we have for in this mm-hmm. episode. We hope you were blessed, everybody out there listening. Uh, I would also share with Ambry and everybody out there listening some great things we have going on. We're looking for creative ways at the Theology of the Body Institute to continue reaching people with this teaching during this coronavirus when we can't travel and do our live events or have our live courses. So we have just recently concluded and announced that we are gonna be doing an online virtual conference on the theology of the body. We have a whole lineup of awesome, awesome speakers who have agreed to be part of this. The weekend of May 8th to the 10th. So for three days, uh, we will be offering these, gosh, we have dozens of presenters Excellent. Who are who are offering video presentations, and we're going to make this available for free okay. over that weekend. There will be a way to sign up for also a premium package that will give you access if you don't get through all the talks during the weekend. And anyway, all of that will be. Sh- you'll see the link in the show notes. You'll also see a link in the show notes for our online theology of the body level one course that we'll be offering towards the end of May, so you'll get the specific dates. You can learn more about that. We hope everyone is faring well during this time of lockdown. We're praying for you, for your loved ones, for anyone out there who's out of work, for anyone out there who is suffering in particular ways. Please know that you're in our prayers. We love you, we bless you. Mm -hmm. Remember, you are an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes.